He's got this thing burning in him. I know he's living it. So, Father, I thank you for this messenger. God, I thank you for your son in whom you are well pleased tonight. God, I thank you for his preparation and study. God, for his excellence in dividing the word, I ask you would anoint the scriptures, Holy Spirit, that you authored, that you inspired, and I ask that you would make them alive to our hearts, that we would be fascinated, that we would grow in confidence of the work of your son, Father, on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. Thanks, Clint. So the notes notes got around and everything? Notes are good to go? As far as you know? Okay, there's a couple more over here. No, maybe not. Never mind. People filled in. So, But yeah, like Clint said, we're on the series on the cross. So I'm speaking on the cross tonight. Um, so we don't have too much time, so I'm just going to kind of jump right in. So if you have your notes, if you just want to go to Roman numeral one there, just kind of the overview of why, we're, why I'm doing this. But uh, Roman numeral one says, gaining clarity on the work and the heart of the cross. So uh, as far as what are we doing? Uh, point A, the, the clearest demonstration of God's heart for the world is seen in the Father crushing the Son in our place so that we can be saved from punishment due us and brought into intimate relationship with Him. So that's kind of the, just, I guess, the paradigm for this whole message of why, what is the cross? I mean, it's, it's many things. The cross has many facets, and there's the work of the cross. I mean, the, the whole history hinges on the cross. There's much to talk about the cross, but I think the, the thing I'm kind of aiming for tonight is to give us a broad overview of what the Lord's heart was at the cross, just so we can, can fill our hearts with uh, joy and, and, and love. So, point B says, yeah, it's kind of restating this, I want to bring clarity to the situation we were in and the amazing demonstration of love that God showed us in that solution so that these truths can fill our mind and our heart. So that's the goal, is that these truths would fill our mind and our heart. Um, it's just all laid out for me. So we have point I. It is only as these truths fill our, our mind and become part of our dialogue with the Lord that they change us. It's only as our view of God changes that we are transformed. Um, See, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to talk about the cross tonight, and it's like the Holy Spirit does bring power, and it does change our hearts in one-time encounters. But for the long run, the the work of the cross, the, the really, or I guess the the long term and just the deep effect of our heart comes from long hours of meditating it, of of talking to the Lord about it, of thanking Him for it, of rejoicing always for it. So I'm going to talk about it tonight, but it's only as these truths fill our mind and our heart over the years that it really begins to transform our heart. So I'm expecting him and hoping he does something big in our hearts tonight. But really, this, I mean, it's a lifelong process. I mean, for all eternity, this is going to be the subject of our, our fascination before Jesus. So this is, it's a, yeah, it's a lifelong process, but I want to just give a foundation that we can meditate on. And then uh, just, yeah, Philippians 4, 8, Paul is encouraging us to meditate on the things which are, as he listed above there, um, there's one thing about meditation too, and just Paul's at the end of there, at the end of that passage in Philippians 4, it says meditate on these things. And just the word meditate isn't just kind of let come, let come through your mind what comes. It's an actual, we're actually um, actively setting our minds on things. So meditating is an, it's an actual, we're setting our minds to do something. So it, it's not just kind of whatever comes, comes. We're actually setting our minds to actually meditate on the things that Jesus wants us to meditate on. So it's not going to just happen. We have to actually okay, I'm actually going to think about this today. If we just kind of let it happen, we'll probably think about lunch and um, <laughs> mostly lunch, but that's about it. <laughs> All right. So uh, point two, the situation. The just wrath of God was abiding on us. So there's kind of, first I kind of want to lay out the situation we were in and then what that, the problem that that brought and then God's solution. That's kind of the overall later of the message. So, uh, just point A, the situation regarding God's wrath. Point A says, Each of us had sinned greatly. Because of our wickedness, we deserve punishment. The measure of the punishment due each of us was exactly what we deserved. In other words, God is a perfect judge. He wasn't, he's not going to punish one bit too much or too little. 
So that was the situation we were in. We had the just wrath of God abiding on us. We had punishment on our heads, and it was completely just. It wasn't just kind of a rogue rage from the Father. It was He had calculated an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, as it says in Exodus 21, 24. The justice, the, the punishment he had against us wasn't just he's angry and he's going to punish us. It's actually, it was completely just based on exactly the amount of wickedness we'd committed. So that was our situation. And just let's go through just Ephesians 2, 3 right there. Um, the, the, son, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh and were by nature children of wrath. So we were by nature children of wrath. That was, that was our, that's, that's who we were. We, weren't, we were all children of wrath. In other words, the wrath of God was abiding on us. That's, that's kind of part of who our identity was before we came into Jesus. Um, and then right into Romans 3, 9 to 20 says, As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. So that was our testimony. Our testimony was that there's none of us that was righteous. We'd all turned aside. We'd all turned to our own ways. So um, that's, that's the, the point A is kind of more of the punishment. We had, we had just punishment on our heads. But in addition to that, while we were in rebellion against God, God also had anger against us. Um, and that's something that, I'll get into that more, but that's something that if, a lot of times we have wrong paradigms of God's anger, but at the same time, God's anger is, it's a big subject in the Bible, and it's actually part of his glory. It's part of who he is. If he wasn't angry, he would basically be, in one sense, he'd be a hippie, which is not who Jesus is. And it sounds funny, but it's true. Like he, he, he has his passion in him. So, point B, as we see how truly evil and destructive sin is, we begin to understand a bit more of the anger, fury, and the wrath that God had towards sin. And then there are over 150 references to God's anger in the Bible. At least that many. There's probably a lot more. That was just kind of my rough e-sword estimate. Um, so that's what that was. But let's read Isaiah 13, uh, 6 to 16. That's just, uh, if you guys want to turn there, if you have your Bibles with you, if not, you can look on or just listen. So I have the New King James here. So it's Isaiah 13. I think I have something, but yeah. Thanks, guys. So this passage is talking about the day of the Lord. I won't go too much into that because we have not a ton of time. But basically, this is the, this is the day when Jesus comes back and he, he punishes sin. So Isaiah 13, verses 6 to 16. And this this isn't like a one-time passage. This is actually a lot of the Old, Old Testament prophets are, are testifying of God's the coming day when he, he punishes sin because he has... He has wrath towards sin. And we'll go on to find out that's not all that he has towards sin. He also has love for the, these people in the midst of their wickedness. He actually has deep love for them. But he does have wrath for sin, and that's, that's part of the picture. So let's just read this in Isaiah uh, 13, 6 to 16. So speaking of the coming day when Jesus returns and punishes sin, it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. And they will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he will destroy its, he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the, and the wicked for their iniquity. And will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible, and will make a moral man rarer than fine gold, a man more than fine than golden wedge of Ophir, than the gold golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and will move out of her place, in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. 
<coughs> so, like I said, that's one of many passages, and this is, like I said, you, I mean, many of you know this, but this is half the story, but we have to have the, the picture of the fact that God does have wrath toward sin. Um, and just a couple statements about that is his wrath, is his anger is just. It's not based off, like so much of our anger, if we try to compare our anger to God's anger, we'll end up confused because our anger is often based off, I was expecting you to do this, and you did this, and you offended me. And God, in one sense, we can't hurt God, so you can't offend him in that sense, but you can hurt his creation, and therefore you can cause much anger. So, um, a couple of passages. Deuteronomy 4.25 says, When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved, supposed to say carved, carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord, your God, to provoke him to anger. And then Isaiah 65.3 says, The people who provoke me to anger continuously to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on the altar of brick. So just more, just biblical precedent for God's anger. Um, but also, there is a distinction to be made there in, in point C that, I'm just going to read this point C, because there's a distinction, yeah. So there's an important distinction to be made here. God is not filled with anger towards sin because he's an angry person, as though we must tiptoe around him and always be on edge lest we set him off. In Exodus 34, God reveals that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in unfailing love. The source of God's anger is not that he's easily offended, but that humans have created great wickedness, have committed great wickedness. And that's kind of the, the paradigm for this whole thing, is that God, the reason that God is fury toward people is not because that he's easily offended, um, as many of the, the images in our mind can, from past things can portray. That, the, fact that the, or the, the fact that he's angry is based off the fact that he, uh, humans have committed such great wickedness. So just confirming that says that in the Lord, Exodus 34, the passage below that says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in unfailing love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So the truth is the fact that, that God is actually slow to anger. He's actually the slowest anger of anyone. He's actually the most patient person in all the universe. So that's, that's who God is. So that just displays the fact that he's slow to anger just it, it, uh, it magnifies the fact of our wickedness. The fact that a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love is so filled with anger towards sin, it just it doesn't paint a picture of God being angry. It just shows the depth of our wickedness and depravity apart from him. So let's go to page two. Just keep going on that. So then also just another, just kind of further painting the picture of the fact of who God's character is and just the depths of wickedness that it takes to push him to anger um, let's just read point D. It says, I think it is essential that we have a correct paradigm of the glad heart of God. In studying his anger and wrath at sin, we must remember that God has a happy heart. His default is happy. He has to be provoked to anger. Seeing the joy in his heart also helps us understand the depths of love shown at the cross. It's hard to imagine a mostly mad God showing the kind of extravagant love seen at the cross. And so it's true that God's heart is, he's happy. Like, and it's one way, I guess, putting it, his default is happy. That's kind of, not theologically maybe the way you'd put it, but that's, that's the reality. He, his heart is happy. Before creation, he, he was rejoicing. During creation, he was rejoicing. It is only the wickedness of man that, that brings anything else to his heart. And even in his wrath, he's still rejoicing. Like right now, we can know that his heart rejoices over us, his children, that he is rejoicing, even though he does at the same time have wrath towards sin. So just a couple of passages on that. This one, First Chronicles uh, 16.27, actually came across just a couple of weeks ago, and it's just kind of like, I didn't even know it was there, but it's great. So, honor and majesty are before him, strength and gladness are in his place. So, the, there you have it. Gladness is in the place of our Father. Um, you will show me the path of life, and in your presence is the fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures. And so, in his presence is the fullness of joy. 
So we need to meditate on that, the fact that in his presence is the fullness of joy and also the fullness of wrath. And it's hard, I mean, our minds can't comprehend that, but the fact is, when, we, when we're picturing God's wrath towards sin, to get a full picture, we have to have the fact that he's, he's the fullness of joy, but he's also the fullness and the fulfillment of wrath, which is amazing. So just really quick on this, point E, I was a bit hesitant to put down, just because I, I don't want to try to reason away God's anger as though, kind of like we're, I don't want to ever feel like I'm ashamed of it and try to reason it away as though this is why. But I think I feel like these are kind of a couple of reasons why we can put reasons to God's anger. We don't, we don't have to say he's just angry, but we don't have any idea why. We can actually have a couple uh, couple reasons for his anger. So for point E, um, small I, small one I, however you'd say that. <laughs> I don't know how you do that even. Um, so yeah, sin causes pain. And just the scripture for that, Romans 13.10 says that love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So the reason that we have a law is to keep from harm. So therefore God's ways don't harm, man's ways do harm. So that's one of the reasons that God has such wrath toward sin is because uh, sin causes harm. And he deep, because of his deep love for his creation, anything that causes harm to his creation is going to provoke him to deep anger. So that's one, of the, that's, that's, that's one of the main reasons why God has such anger and rage at sin. And um, Let's maybe see some more of that later. But just an example. Oh, yeah, we'll go into it later. So uh, point two, though, it says that God is the king of all creation, will punish sin to maintain the integrity and goodwill of his government. If the U.S. government never punished crime, it would grow rampant, become the accepted norm, and destroy the integrity of the nation. And this is true, that if, if all of a sudden the U.S. stopped, or stopped punishing any kind of crime, the crime would become accepted, and soon the whole nation would fall apart because there's no... If, if you can do anything, then why not go steal cars? Why not do whatever if there's no complications? And soon, that not only causes destruction to the citizens, but as it becomes the norm, the whole nation begins to fall apart because there's no justice. So part of the reason that God is, is going to punish sin, as of now, he's, in his mercy, he's actually not displaying the fullness of his punishment. But the one of the reasons he is, is going to punish sin is so that people learn not to sin so that he can govern his creation for the goodwill of all. So that's one point. Um, point three there, punishment restores justice. And this is one that I think is, just, is very important for us to understand too. Um, and I don't fully understand it, but I, I think the, the general idea is kind of there. It says, uh, just an example, if a young child is brutally murdered and is brushed off as though nothing happened, something is left feeling not right. We have this desire for justice because God does. So in one sense, when something's made wrong, we have to do something to make it right just because that's the way that God is. If someone is brutally murdered and you say, that's ah, no big deal, that's, that's not just. There's something that that person had value and they might, not, they might have deserved that death, but they had value before the Lord. And because of that deep value that person had, if someone comes in and destroys them, there's, in one sense, there's a, an unbalanced value taking, if you could put it that way. That person had value before the Lord and they were taken, and so therefore something has to be done. Someone has to pay for that in order for them to feel, I'm worth it. So, and someone did pay for it. That's the thing. Someone will pay for it. Either Jesus pay for it or else they will pay for it on the day that Jesus returns. So, um, and just a real quick, I put a disclaimer, I don't know if that's quite the way you put it, but point F, rebellion is not the same thing as wickedness. So just when we think about the, uh, just the, the anger of the Lord, um, we just need to remember that rebellion is different than wickedness. That rebellion is, I know what you want, God. I don't care. I'm doing my own thing. Weakness is what every single one of us go through where we want to follow the Lord. We see ourselves continuing to stumble. And you might stumble a thousand days in a row, but if you get up each time and say, Jesus, I want to follow you, then you're in weakness. And actually, Psalm 147 says that the Lord takes pleasure and he delights in those who fear him and in those who hope in his mercy. So he actually takes pleasure in those who are weak 
but he has wrath toward those who are in rebellion. So that's, that's a big area the enemy comes at us as believers is try to get us to think that we're in rebellion when the reality is we're just in weakness, which he delights in those who are weak, but he has anger toward those who are rebe- in rebellion. He still loves those in rebellion, but he has deep anger toward them. So that's a big distinction. We need to make that distinction or else the, 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 the truth of the wrath of God can paralyze us as sincere believers, which it's not meant to be the truth. It's, it's, it's meant to set us on fire. So just G, in summary, the world had created great wicked, committed great wickedness and rebellion and deserved severe punishment. Not only this, but they refused to repent and remained his enemies. They had no fear of God before their eyes, according to Romans 3.18. So that's the, that's the point we're at right now is this, um, or prior to the cross in one sense, um, we were at a place where we were in rebellion, and not only that, but we didn't care. It wasn't as though we were in rebellion and we had we repented and said, oh Lord, I'm sorry for my sin, I, I want to be saved. The world prior to Jesus deciding to save them was in rebellion and they didn't care. They were in rebellion and they were his enemies. They had made themselves his enemies and they didn't care about it. So it wasn't as though the world is in rebellion and then saw their sin and, and they repented and came back to the Lord. According to Romans 5, we see that Jesus died for the world when they were still his enemies. So the situation was the world was in rebellion and not only that, but they actually they didn't care. They, they didn't care what God thought. They knew they were in rebellion and they refused to repent. So that was our situation apart from the mercy of God. So in a perfectly just story, in a story of the American government, which is a just, I mean, which can be just government, um, it would be basically this is our situation. You come before the judge, receive punishment of death, end of story. That, could, that would have been the end of the story in, in, our, uh, in, in, the, in pure justice. That would have been the end of the story. We come before the Lord, we're committed, we're found guilty, and we're punished. But because that's not the full story of who God is, that wasn't the end of our story. So point three, or Roman numeral three, this is the second half of, uh, of our situation. So God also at the very same time had a deep love and desire burning in his heart for us. He desired that we would not bear the wrath due us. So that is the truth that actually that makes, that sets our hearts on fire. And that, that's the reason why we're here today. It's not because... If it were just for justice, we would be in the lake of fire. But because of this part of who God is, we can actually stand here and rejoice and thank him. Um, so I'm just going to go through some scriptures here. That just, I just let the scripture speak for itself, basically of God's heart, just of, of what he saw when he looked at humanity. Um, so this is the first one, John 3, 16 to 17. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then uh, Matthew eighteen eleven says, The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And for the next one, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then John twelve forty seven, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The second time he is coming to judge the world, but the first time he came, the world might be saved through him. Um, and then just Micah seven eight seven eighteen the, ne- the the scripture at the top of page three there, just kind of a, a just a, a picture a, a gaze into God's personality. So it says, "Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in mercy." So Micah seven eighteen saying that God actually delights in mercy. He not only gives mercy, he actually delights in mercy. Um, and all of these are just scriptures that we can even just meditate on. Like I said, like the, the, oh, the main thing I want to do tonight is give us even material just to meditate on and just meditate on who, who God is. 
um, just of the way he feels and of his nature and his character. That's how we're transformed as we see who Jesus is and the way he feels about us. We can't love others until we understand just the way that he's freely loved us. So that's part of the reason I, I, these scriptures are all here. So not only we can just look at them now, but if you can also take them throughout the week and, and meditate them and uh, basically throughout the whole, your whole life. So Ephesians 2.4, let's go on to the next one. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And then the last one, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So long story short is we had earned wrath. We, we were exceedingly wicked, but God in his mercy loved us in that state anyway and pursued us. So point B, let's just, point B is just the fact that we didn't earn this is what truly sets our hearts on fire. It's one thing for someone to earn salvation. I mean, that's not possible. But it's one thing if you feel like, you know, I've kind of done some good things and I kind of, you kind of likes me a little bit because of what I've done. It's another thing to understand that you were completely without any, there's no, that God had no motivation in you to save you. It was only in who he is. It's, it's that, that truth that truly sets our hearts on fire. So point B, we didn't earn this. We did earn the wrath of God. That was what we had earned. But we had nothing to do with earning the love and mercy of God. It was completely and will always be completely based in the character and nature of God. That he loves and desires us even while we were sinners. Yeah, praise that one. Um, yeah. That's the good news. Um, it's true. So, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that's the reality, the, the fact that it was given as a gift to us freely. So, I don't have too much time to go to point C right there, but basically, we, need, we do need to have a full picture. We need to understand the fact that God had wrath at sin, and that that wrath was just. We have to understand his anger. We can't, if we just say God had, had anger at sin, a lot of times because of our past or whatever, we, we put images onto how God felt or, or what God's anger is, and it's actually not who he is, and it, it brings us into condemnation and fear before him. So we need to have a true picture of God's wrath, but we do need to fully understand just the intensity and the, and the fullness of his wrath and the fact that it was just. At the same time, we have to understand the fact of the deep love that he had for humanity and the desire he had for humanity while they were undeserving. And so there is, I mean, there's a movement, it's probably going to increase, but just of, the, of, the, of people in the church or out of the church trying to separate God from his wrath. It's as though saying he loves everyone, which is true, he does love everyone, but love, love is not passionless. Love has passion, and God has passion, and a God separated of wrath is it's not God at all. So that's, I don't have time to go into that tonight, but we'll probably see more of that, and that'll be, I think, a, a thing we'll probably confront in the days to come. So in summary, God had deep love for the undeserving world. That's the summary and that is what rejoice so the problem so this brings us to the problem we have uh, what's this is the, uh, John Harrigan calls this the problem of all government is the point A that God in his love for his creation as a whole and in his deep hatred of wickedness must punish the individual sinner yet in his deep love for the d- and desire for that person as an individual he desires to forgive them so that's the problem that God that God came to is that he he, being righteous, hated sin and he knew he was going to punish sin. He had it set in his mind that he, was, he knew he was going to punish sin. He was planning on punishing sin, but at the same time, he loved the individual sinner and desired to forgive them. So that's, that's the problem of a government, is how does God, who loves sinners, who rightly deserve punishment, 
bring them into fellowship with, uh, with himself, but at the same time, he, he must punish sin. He desires to punish sin. How does he do that? Uh, one just quick thing about just God and justice. It's not, I don't ever want to paint the picture that it's, as though God is subject to something externally from himself, as though that God, um, there's some code of justice that God has to uphold outside of himself. The reason that God punishes sin is because that he himself is just. It's not as though God says, oh man, how are we going to satisfy the universal justice code? That's not how it goes. It's actually the, the fact that he, he has a, a burning desire for justice is based in his own heart. He's not trying to satisfy some law as though God himself were, I wish I could just forgive you guys, but I can't. He's, he's, he's perfectly just. The desire and the need for justice comes from within who he is. And it's not, it's not as though he was trying to get, get out from underneath this, this need for justice. He actually, it was birthed from within, within who he was. Um, so the problem. So then the solution. This, the solution is why we rejoice. So the solution was an atoning sacrifice. So point A says the atoning, the, this, let's read it. The astonishing solution provided by the Godhead was that God himself would come to earth and bear his own wrath. The Son would take on human flesh and bear the punishment that was due us. The Father would crush his dearly beloved Son, the object of all his affection. Even more astonishing is that he did it while we were still his enemies. We did not convince him. It was his heart and his heart alone that brought us to the cross. It is the truth that sets our hearts on fire to love God. What is the depth of this love that he would take our punishment, that the Father would crush the Son and the Son would willingly embrace all this while we were yet his enemies? So that's true. That's the, that's the gospel, the glory of the gospel in a, in a paragraph, and it's, it truly is glorious. So this is, and like I said, like these things, they take time just to, to chew them through, to think about them. Like they take years, they take forever to, to kind of chew this through and think, what actually was my position? How actually unattractive was I before you? Yet what was in your heart that caused you to do this for me? It takes time to chew through these things. We can't get them in just one setting. It takes years and years. And that's part of how we love God with our whole mind. That's, that's part of the commandment is to love God with our whole mind. And I think that, I think, I feel like the fullness sense of that, which God's made a way for us, is where we... Actually, every thought is meditating on who he is. It's talking to him. It's either prayer and talking to him or actually meditating on, on who he is. Where every single thought we have, I mean, I guess I'm not sure if that works with work and stuff like that, but, but in one sense, the, the main thrust by far of our mind is, is meditating on the glory of who Jesus is, which produces love in our hearts and it's, uh, it's played out in actions. So just some passages on just the atonement and what that looks like. Uh, next page, we're on page four now, top of page four. So top of page 4, John one twenty nine says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's good news. And that was John the Baptist's testimony. That's, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, the next one down from that, First John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And just propitiation there, it's, it's kind of a big word, but basically it just means a sacrifice which takes away the wrath that was due us and brings us into a propitious or favorable stance before God. Um, <laughs> that's all right. First uh, John 2, 2. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins. And then just going down the line, the next one says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Which is great. And then just one comment about that is that was, this is John writing this, Revelation, it's the end of his life. 
and he's writing about Jesus. And this is, this is John's testimony about who Jesus is. He says he's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. So talking about the way that the Father, Jesus revealed the Father. He's firstborn from the dead. He's, his resurrection, which Tom's going to talk about next week, has, has brought us eternal life. Um, he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is the king over the earth right now. Even God actually rules over the earth. He's completely sovereign. He doesn't, he doesn't manipulate every one of our decisions, but he is sovereign. But then he goes on to say, this is how John the, or, uh, John the Apostle at the end of his life defines who Jesus is. He says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And so I just think that that was something that just popped into John's mind when he thought about who Jesus was. This statement popped into his mind. He says, Jesus, when he was, when he was meditating on the Lord and just talking to the Lord, I think that just that truth of who Jesus was was flowing in his heart and in his mind. It's, it's the who, him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So that's just a great testimony. So if you're looking for a testimony, just how to talk to the Lord, just talk to him as the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So that's an amazing, all these amazing scriptures, but that one too. Um, the next one, Isaiah 53, the main Old Testament passage on this, the whole the plan of atonement. It says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. And all we like of sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yeah. That's the gospel. It's much gospel. So, um, just a couple really quick points. Uh, just, I'm going to go over point B real quick. So this plan of salvation was established before the world was ever created. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in unity in their desire for fellowship with their creation. So in one, this plan, it didn't come about as man. It, it wasn't as though the Trinity created the earth and then all of a sudden man rebelled. And then they had to figure out what to do. This plan has been established since before the foundations of the earth. The plan, the fact that God knew that he was going to, he created earth, he created all humans knowing that his, it was going to cost his son, his son was going to pay the price. So this, was, this has been in his heart from eternity past. It's not as though we sinned and he had to figure out a plan. This has been his, he knowingly created the earth knowing that this is what would happen, which is an ama- another amazing statement of his love for us. And then also just the fact that they were in unity. That this, it wasn't as though the father was really angry at sin and the son stepped in and said, I'll, I'll save them, Father. Don't, don't, don't uh, bring your wrath on them. The reality is they all three were in unity. It wasn't as though, I mean, hopefully, I mean, sometimes there can be a picture painted as though the father's the angry one and the son stepped in to save us from the father. The truth is all three, the father, son, and the Holy Spirit, felt the same wrath towards sin and the same deep love for people. And they all, in unity, brought this plan up. So um, just... Point six there, Roman numeral six, the result. Just point A, all that stood between us and God has been poured out on Jesus. Nothing is left. We've been completely reconciled to God. A way has been made so that we can be washed white as snow to the point that as, as, the, as if we had never sinned. Yeah. So that's the reality. That's what happened at the cross. All the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. All of our punishment was poured out on Jesus. Everything due us was poured out on Jesus. He took everything we have. He became our sin and he gave us everything he is. He actually gave us his righteousness. We not only have the sin lifted from us, all the penalty from our sin taken out on Jesus, we actually get to receive the life and the righteousness that Jesus has. Amazing. So therefore, let's read the first passage there. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5.1. Um, and let's go to the bottom there. Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And it's true. He, he did that in the Old Testament, and they didn't maybe have the fullness of the picture or understanding of how he could do that, but basically God has forgiven sin, and the reason he can forgive sin is not because he just overlooks it, it's because he's fully punished it in Jesus. 
So that's important to see. The reason he can forgive our sins is not because he's just he's merciful and says, I'll forget about it. The reason he can forgive sin is because it's been fully punished to the fullest extent in Jesus on the cross. So that's glorious. That's amazing. Um, and then I just point B real quick too. It just this all is just, I mean the whole the whole story of the cross is amazing. But in point B at the bottom of page four there. In this reconciliation, God didn't just remove the wrath and punishment that was due us. He actually brought us into intimate fellowship, even to the point of making us his sons and daughters. And that continues on the next page. And further yet, making us the bride of his son. What kind of love is this that Jesus would take those who were his enemies and give his life for them and then make him his own bride? And it's just, I mean, it's one thing for God to say, okay, I'll forgive you and I'll figure out a way to bring you, to forgive your sins, I'll pay for your sins, and you can live in my kingdom forever and it'll all be awesome. It's one thing for him to say, I'll forgive your sins, you can live in my kingdom, you can be my subjects, I'll enjoy you, and we'll, we'll forgive your sins. It's another thing for him to take those who are his enemies and not only forgive their sins, but then make them his sons and daughters. Those who hated him, who caused the death of his son, actually make them sons and daughters. That's another thing. That's beyond, far beyond just forgiving sins. He not only said, okay, you, Hitler, if, if Adolf Hitler would have repented, he, not, he instantly, like from the moment Adolf Hitler repented, he would have said, I not only forgive you, you're my son. Come into my arms right now. And so it's like that, that astonishing truth, I think that's it's something we need to meditate on. Um, I've even been meditating on that too, just the fact that if Adolf Hitler, or if you think of someone else evil, if he would have come at the end of his life and come and said, Jesus, I'm sorry, forgive me for my sins. I've been wicked. The father with open arms would have said, come here. And he would have pulled up in his arms and said, you're my son. You're completely forgiven. You can stand before me as though you never sinned. And just that truth of like the most wicked person we can think of standing before Jesus as though they had never sinned. It's just amazing. That he would have made the worst person ever to live his son. He would have made, I can't think of anyone else. He would have made Adolf Hitler his son in an instant if he would have come to him. Um, point seven, conclusion. So just the, the main conclusion is just point A, that there is no greater love. That Jesus taking our place on the cross will for all time be the greatest proof of his love and desire for us, even while we're his enemies. And it's true that this, this is the, the greatest proof of God's love. So John 15, 13 to 15 there says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. It says, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Yeah, so that's, that's the truth. That there is no greater, that the, the cross is the greatest expression of love. And in all of our meditation and all of our seeking to know who God is, that there's no greater expression of who God is than what is seen at the cross. That God's love for us at the cross is the greatest expression of his heart we'll find anywhere. I mean, there's, there's much spoken of, of God's heart in the prophets in the Old Testament, and there's many other places we can learn of who God is, but the greatest source of the knowledge of who God is is found at the cross. It's the greatest source of the knowledge of God. So point B then, what then should be our response? Uh, just letter I there. How should we feel about Jesus' great sacrifice and the punishment he bore for us? Should we feel joy, remorse, sadness, somberness? And the reason I include this, this remorse, sadness, and somberness is I know that, for me at least, I've seen like the, even the temptation to feel like, oh man, like I did that to Jesus. I should feel sad for the, what I put him through. Which in one sense, that maybe is true. But at the end of the day, we want to feel what Jesus wants us to feel. Even though that might be right for us to feel somberness and sadness and even like go around grieving the rest of our lives for what we put Jesus through. That would maybe be just, but that's not what he calls us to do. So at the end of the day, at the end of uh, letter I under B, it says, at the end of the day, we want to feel how Jesus felt about it. So Hebrews 12, uh, 12, 12, right below there, it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of, of the throne of God. So Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. And that's, that, that's an amazing truth, the fact that he had joy set before him when he's on the cross, in the midst of all that he went through. Um, I didn't have time tonight, but we could have gone through just the, what it looked like for Jesus to bear the wrath of God. I mean, it's an intense, that's an intense subject, but there's, the cross is so big we didn't have time to go into that tonight. But So just point B, this, uh, if Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, then we should join with him and rejoice and be grateful for such a wonderful Savior and salvation. Joy and thankfulness should be our response. He desires these rather than remorse. So the, the response that Jesus desires in light of the cross is that we rejoice. If there's one thing, if, I mean, if, if he's the one who bore our sins, then it's just that we should give him what he wants. And he wants our whole life, but in one, as a response to the cross, he wants us to rejoice and be thankful. That's, that's the, the command given over and over. So there's a couple of scriptures there. Uh, the first one is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So rejoice always. So that's to be our response, to rejoice at all times. Uh, and then First Thessalonians 5, 16, 18, right below that says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the will of God is that we rejoice always, and we give thanks at all times. So the response that God desires from us in, in seeing the cross is, there's many things we could feel like we had written up there and whatever point I there's many things we could feel when we see the cross but he's given us what we're, we're to feel we're to feel thankfulness we're, we're to rejoice we're to praise him we're to love him we're to pour our lives out as an offering before him and if Tom if you're ready you want to come up and plug in um, so just kind of a conclusion just to the whole thing in uh, under point triple uh, I there at the bottom I'm just going to read through this um, we meditate on it and ask the Holy Spirit to give us more understanding so that we are set on fire to love God. When we see the depths of love, tenderness, and passion shown at the cross, our hearts are set on fire to know him. It is the understanding that he loved me completely of his own accord. I had nothing to do with motivating him. He freely paid a price I will never know, all for the love of me, all for love of me while I hated him. The security we feel when we see this pursuit of God for us when we were at our worst is amazing. The understanding of his great sacrifice inspires us to be passion, inspires us inspires in us a passionate desire to give everything we have to live for him, every breath and everything we have, not to earn his love, but because we've been freely given this love. So, and then just this, this is kind of the a testimony of Paul in the last verse there, going one of Paul's reactions to the cross. He says, "And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for those who died for him." Sorry but for him who died for them and rose again. So that's, that was Paul's reaction. He says that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And so that, that's, the, that's the conclusion of the cross, is we, when we finally see this thing for what it is, we see the great love for Jesus, it inspires in us. It's not, it, on the front end, in the fear of the Lord, we maybe surrender our whole lives to him and we, we serve him with everything we have out of the fear of God because we know that he's right, he asks for everything, therefore I give him everything. But more and more as we begin to see the love that Jesus has for us, um, just the passionate love that Jesus has for us is what begins to inspire our, our, wholehearted, our wholehearted obedience. So that's the full, the full, uh, the, the final, I guess you could say one final outplay of, of seeing the cross for what it is, is that we were inspired not just because we fear the Lord to give everything to him, which is a very good reason, and it's, that's a required reason. We need to do that. We give our, everything we have to him out of the fear of the Lord because he's right and because we do fear him. But beyond that, he wants to take us to a place where we actually, 
the, the love we see he has for us actually inspires us to give everything and to serve him with everything. So that's a pretty good word, man. There's a lot of word in there. Yeah, let's give Andy a round, man. He did his, He clearly did homework. I, I hope you take that sheet home and look, look up those verses again and look through them. We're going to go into a time of worship. I remember hearing a testimony of a guy named Jeffrey Dahmer. Do you guys remember him? Mass murderer. I remember him talking about receiving the revelation of the cross. And when I heard him talk about forgiveness, something was provoked in me that I realized, I don't think I understand the cross yet because there's still something in my heart that says he still has to pay something more than what Jesus has done. And it's an incredibly powerful thing when the cross crucifies both pride and self-hatred and discouragement. It brings joy for the self-righteous because it delivers them, and it brings joy for the self-condemned you know, condemned because it delivers them. And so maybe there's people in all those, but we're going to sing. Yeah. I'm just going to rejoice, I think. I'm just going to obey Jesus. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. 